Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family as we continue our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're still in Matthew chapter 13, and this special chapter in the Gospel of Matthew contains seven parables, and we're talking about two of the parables towards the end of that chapter. The first parable is the parable of the treasure hidden in a field. It's a very short parable. And the second one is the parable of the pearl of great price. We've taken kind of a, a long time here on Matthew 13, just so you can kind of picture what's going on. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's five teaching sections. St. Matthew has organized the gospel according to five teaching sections. And since this is for a, a Jewish audience, uh, early Jewish converts to the Catholic faith, he organized them into five books of teaching, very similar to the first five books of the Bible. And Matthew 13 is a real gem. We have the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, incredibly important, Matthew 13, these seven parables, and then if we get towards the end of the gospel, Matthew chapters 24 and 25 about the end time. So, Let's go to the first, the parable of hidden in the field. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now the parable of the pearls. Matthew 13, 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And, you know, a lot of times a religious commitment is viewed as some type of external compulsion. But nobody had to twist the arm of this man who found a treasure hidden in a field. It said, in his joy, he went and basically sold everything he had so he could go and buy this field, so he could possess the treasure. I had a wealthy businessman at a Legatus conference that I was speaking at tell me, Steve, if you really want to be a millionaire, let's just say you had two plots of land growing citrus fruits, and in one field you had oranges, and in the second field, you have grapefruit. And if you find that the grapefruit is way outselling the oranges and the grapefruit is bringing you far more profit than the oranges, well, what you do is you cut down all the orange trees and plant more grapefruit trees. And what he was just saying to be successful in business, you concentrate on what is valuable. And we're gonna bring this back to catechesis is where you put your focus. Where do you put your concentration? And that's what's valuable. So here are the related questions. Trying to determine what is valuable. What's the treasure that's being spoken of here? That the guy discovered in his field a treasure. What's the treasure? These are obviously parables. They're pointing to something. And then secondly, what's the pearl? What's the pearl of great price, the pearl of great value? And I need to 
asked for the attention of parents and priests and grandparents and podcasters and apologists and catechists and publishers and anybody else who happened to be listening, I believe there's a tendency in today's church by good Catholics, I'm not talking about people who show up to Mass, Christmas, and Easter at best. No, I'm talking about faithful Catholics. There's a tendency of a near miss when it comes to the ability to concentrate on what is valuable, to focus on that one thing that you're willing to divest yourself of a number of other things in order to focus on it. Let's just say you were shooting a rocket at the moon, and if it was off by one degree, well, I got my calculator out. Actually, I didn't. I can't figure this out, but I found out that if your moonshot was just one degree off, that you would miss the moon by 4,169 miles. So in other words, a near miss over the long haul has huge negative consequences. So I'm asking you, the listener today, what's the treasure? What's the pearl? What's so valuable that we need to concentrate on? Now, somebody who might appreciate the book of Revelation would say, oh, that's easy. It's the church. And you turn to the second last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, and starting in verse 9, it says, Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he said to me, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, the bride is the church. And so the Spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy Jerusalem, another term for the church, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and its radiance like a most rare jewel. Now we're talking about a jewel, a pearl of great price, a treasure of great price. And he says it was like jasper, clear as crystal. The city was pure gold, and the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every jewel. And it describes 12 different jewels to describe the glory of the church. Now, if you said, well, that's easy. The treasure to focus on is just the church. You would have a very, very good near miss. Why? Because a couple of verses later, it says this, and I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And this city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In other words, in order to have radiance through these various jewels, you have to have light. And the church is a creation of God. It does radiate the glory of God, but the ultimate source of that isn't the church itself. It's the Lamb. It's Jesus Christ. And there's a 
fundamental question we should be asking ourselves, and every now and I like to ask questions that I think are very important. I think are very important for the situation our culture finds itself in, and it's this. As a church, do we have too much of a tendency to be looking in a mirror? In other words, emphasizing the goodness of the Catholic faith, and don't get me wrong, these things aren't bad, and talk a lot or maybe a little bit more about the things of our faith or the church rather than the essence of the church, namely Jesus himself. Are we looking in a mirror too much or are we gazing at Christ? And this is going to have immense implications as our culture is increasingly moving to a pagan culture. I have basically written a book that I've been sitting on for a little while, but it's entitled as follows, Transforming Grace, subtitled, How to Rescue Young Catholics Drowning in a Secular Culture. And you might ask, what does transforming grace have to do with rescuing young Catholics drowning in a secular culture? Well, it's this. Unless youth today are transformed, they will not survive the cultural onslaught from a sexual culture, um, a secular culture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, St. Paul says this, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God. In other words, our focus is on God, is on Christ. We are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, how does personal change take place? Well, in this verse that's translated being changed into his likeness, the Greek word behind that is the word that we get metamorphosis in the English language. A metamorphosis means to change the essential form of something. It's to become or changed into the likeness of Christ. This is the essence of what needs to take place in Christian discipleship. Now, given that this might not have been much of a emphasis in the last half of the last century and even the first couple of decades of this century, but we are losing our young people left and right. Now, let's just imagine you have today, statistically, two Catholic families with two kids. Only one of those families is going to have a child make it all his or her life as a faithful Catholic due to the fallout rate that's going on. This is astonishing. So what the need is, is to have this type of transformation. And I'm following up. We were in 2 Corinthians 3, and these are verses, mom and dad, priest, or if you're a catechist, you want to pay attention to because, in a sense, they're being ignored. And if the essence of a youth discipleship is this transformation, we need to pay a lot of attention to it. We need to cut down some other trees and focus on this tree. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, St. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
So there's an alternative. And St. Paul was writing to Romans, and Rome, when St. Paul was writing to Romans, was a very pagan empire, a pagan city. And he says you have an alternative. One is to be conformed to the pagan culture or be transformed by Christ. And that word transformed in Romans 12 is the exact same word in Greek as we find changed in 2 Corinthians 3. So in other words, your sons or da- and, and daughters or your grandchildren are either going to be conformed, especially to the social media black hole, or they're going to be transformed by beholding the glory of Christ. And the point I've been trying to make in this broadcast, and will continue to do so, is that we don't want to be mirror-gazing in a certain sense. We want to know our faith. We want to appreciate our faith and the doctrines of our faith. And we want to be thankful for our church, which, which gives us the fullness of the faith. But the whole point isn't our doctrines. It's not the church. It's Christ that makes all of that possible. It's his truth. It's his church. We're his people, and we want to focus on Christ. And it sounds so simple, but, you know, one degree off and you miss the moon. And St. Paul says it's by our gaze, our focus on Christ, that we end up being transformed. And the opposite happens. Just go a little bit further in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 4. And just might mention, Corinth exceeded every other city that I'm aware of in the Roman Empire for its immorality but it had a strong Catholic presence there. So it was one or the other. You were either being transformed by gazing at Christ or you were being conformed by your secular culture. And and St. Paul writes about those who aren't transformed. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, you know, a lot of emphasis is a lot of times the primary focus is put on something regarding ourselves over the church, but the essence of the church in our Christian life, in our doctrines, is Jesus Christ. And it's God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we need our focus to be on Christ. And what happens if that doesn't happen? There's darkness. Now, there's probably the most expansive spread of mortal sin in the history of the Catholic Church has occurred in just the last couple of decades with the spread of internet pornography. It has captured literally tens of millions of Catholic men. And I'm not trying to hammer anybody here. I want you to know what's going on. We're either conformed to the pagan world 
or we're transformed into the image of Christ. And I noticed in my lifetime, when I was a boy, there's a lot bigger middle ground. There's a lot of people that went to church, and I'm sure a lot of those people didn't really have much heart into the uh, act of going to church, but a lot of people went to church. But things have separated, and you're either being conformed or transformed. And what happens when this is the strategy of the evil one, when you have something like internet pornography coming into the mind, the mind is darkened. And St. Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, in this case, also believers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in Christ. Um, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But what happens if, if the internet's capable to bringing in a flood of immorality? Well, they're not being transformed. And as a result, you have massive amounts of falling away. And again, these are the simplest parables in the world. I mean, I've taken up the better part of a broadcast saying this. Somebody a lot smarter than myself could write a very lengthy book on the topic, and all Jesus needed was two or three sentences to tell us where to focus, to focus on the treasure, to focus on the pearl of great price. And this isn't an arm twist. And maybe some of the reasons we have to seemingly arm twist young people into being good disciples of Christ is they haven't seen the value. And if we would more focus on Christ and who he is and what he's done, I mean, right to Jesus. That's why we stand up when we hear the gospels, because we're hearing him, the words of Jesus and the focus on Jesus. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, St. Paul goes on. He says that their hearts may be encouraged to have all the riches of assured understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where's the treasure to be found? Okay, let's say if you're a wealthy landowner and you have a thousand acres, where do you start digging to look for that treasure. And you know, there's a whole lot of uh, topics and doctrines and everything else you might want to present to your catechism class, to your own children, but it's Jesus is where that treasure is. And it sounds, this is too simple to even mention, I know, but sometimes very simple things that we don't mention and we don't consciously focus on has a result that is so heartbreaking. It's, it, then leads to conforming of the bulk of our youth to a secular culture. So I'm going to side with an early Catholic saint, Saint Irenaeus, who wrote one of the major early apologetic works in the Catholic faith. He has five books comprehensive in defending the Catholic faith. Um, He was, or should say, will be very soon named a doctor of the church. But here's what St. Irenaeus said about the parable we're talking about today, the treasure. For Christ is the treasure which was hid in the field, that is, this world. But the treasure hid is the Christ revealed in the scriptures. So 
if you want to focus on Christ, well, a great place to start digging to find that treasure is in the scriptures themselves. Uh, introduce your children. I, I think uh, Gospel of John is one of the easiest as far as reading and understanding and focusing on Jesus as he reveals himself. This is the key. And now, th this might seem a little touchy for some folks, but let's think about the Eucharist. We realize, uh, fortunately, there's a major problem with a lack of belief in what the Eucharist represents and what it is, even amongst Catholics who attend Mass. And so efforts are being made to try to raise that awareness. But let me ask you, what makes the Eucharist so special? And a lot of times when we talk about the Eucharist, uh, apologists will want to talk about transubstantiation. Well, is that going to lead to transformation? Is that going to prevent being conformed to the world? Now, don't get me wrong. That's great for a philosophy major in college or especially a, a graduate student. But what just about the average person and the average youth? What's so special about the Eucharist? We can talk about the Eucharist and then we talk about the real presence. But just imagine your ears as a young person hearing these things, and don't get me wrong, but this is what's happening. They're thinking you're talking about two it's. The Eucharist is an it. It's something we do, or it's something we receive, or the real presence is an it as far as it happens or something, but it's left a little bit up in the air. What if we just changed our speech and our vocabulary just a little bit, and we always talk about the real presence of Christ, or say the real presence of Jesus that we receive in the Mass or when we receive the Eucharist, focusing even on Jesus, because to me, if you understand it's Jesus, it's such a, a tremendous focus Jesus is the focus of the gospel reading, and then Jesus is the focus of the Eucharist, and allow people to get it through their minds that we are focusing on Jesus, we're receiving Jesus, I'm contemplating Jesus, and he's transforming my life. That's what it means to have the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I've told this story before, but it was kind of one of these unforgettable things you do. I was flying off to a conference somewhere, and I was seated in coach, and the stewardess came up to me and said, you know, uh, excuse me, would you like to sit in first class? And I had no idea why she had that, and I said, sure. And I went to first class, and boy, got a nice breakfast, big seats, and I'm thinking, wow, God's just rewarding his servants, um, allowing me to have a nice big table to work on. I like to prep for a conference on my way there and such. So I was just finishing up my breakfast, enjoying it, maybe had a second cup of coffee. And I noticed the lady seated next to me uh, was pulling books out of her handbag, and they were very serious books uh, on theology. And I mean, I thought, oh, 
Oh, okay. God isn't rewarding the servants going to the, a conference to be able to prepare a talk. No, I think I'm supposed to talk with this woman seated next to me. And I just casually mentioned that um, I said, uh, those are some pretty serious uh, Bible study tools you're pulling out of there. And she says, yes, I'm going to go to do a, a talk. And uh, she was an Assembly of God leader's wife, a national leader of the Assemblies of God. And I don't know if you're aware, but there's, uh, I don't even know the number, but the tens of millions of Americans that were Catholics are now Assemblies of God. So I said to her, I said, um, well, I went to an Assembly of God college. And um, I couldn't say it then, but my New Testament professor ended up becoming the head of the Assemblies of God for the entire United States. And we talked for a while, and I uh, had a seminary professor who was also Assembly of God, well-known scripture scholar, and um, we talked back and forth. And then I dropped the bomb. I said, um, now I'm a Catholic. <laughs> This is inconceivable. Somebody to go from Assembly of God to Catholic. They can understand going from Catholic to Assembly of God. And so uh, we talked back and forth, but then she asked me the question. Well, what do you have now that you didn't have in the Assemblies of God? And I described to her about Jesus. I said, I know you love Jesus. And I know you enough just by this conversation that if you heard Jesus was somewhere in your town, you would drop everything you're doing and being there. And this is exactly what goes on every Mass in a Catholic church. Jesus, really Jesus, is really there. And that's the reason why an Assembly of God person would want to become a Catholic. She was very quiet. There wasn't any um, kind of argument with that. I mean, she, I wasn't trying to put down the assemblies of God because they do teach people to love God, but you can love God even more, and that's the point. This is why this is the treasure that's worth giving up everything, going selling everything you have to find Christ. We're finding Jesus, and that's the point of Christianity. That's the point of these two parables in Matthew 13. I'm Steve Wood, your host. You've been listening to episode 453 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.